Isaiah 57 is the passage on which the, scripture, or the sermon is based today, and uh, thanks for your prayers. My back is a lot better. Doing, glad I'm not in a chair today. Isaiah 57, so he's writing about 100 years, 100 years before Judah, the southern part of Israel, is sent off into exile. They were in Babylon for about 70 years of exile, so... This is happening about 170 years before, I guess, the 57 comes to pass. And it will be said, build up, build up, clear away the rocks and stones so my people can return from captivity. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever whose name is Holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry, for then all people would pass away. All the souls I have made. I was enraged, enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. But they kept on their own stubborn way. I have seen what they do, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to them creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which is never still, whose waves continually churn up mud and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. When you stand next to somebody who is much taller than you are, maybe you've gone to the Idaho State Stampede game and you get down on the court and you see the seven foot two center. Maybe you go down and get his autograph. Or you go to the Boise State basketball. Same thing. When you stand next to somebody who is way bigger than you are, how do you feel? You feel way smaller. <laughs> feel really short. Same is true with a brilliant person. If you get in the presence of somebody who is so much more intelligent than you are, uh, you feel self-consciously dumb, self-consciously you know, unintelligent. What happens when you stand in the presence of something vast and magnificent? When you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, when you're at the feet of one of the glaciers in Glacier National Park, Park, what do you you sense then? Uh, You sense your own finitude. Your finitude and your own smallness. Well, what happens if you come into the presence of of a creature that is infinitely good, infinitely righteous, and infinitely beautiful? Well, the Bible says that that is traumatic, to say the least. 
What is it? What is the phrase that the, the angels, whenever an angel in the Bible appears to somebody, what are, what are the very first words that they say to that person? Do not be afraid. <laughs> Which means, basically, you can get off the ground now. <laughs> I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to kill you. Almost every time an angel appears to a human being in the Bible, the, the first thing that he, that he has to say, he has to kind of comfort them in their, their stricken grief, in, in the panic of their soul. He says, it's okay. Um, it's, it's okay because you, it's traumatic as you feel your own lack. So you look at the front of the bulletin, you see the, this ancient iconography of a seraphim. They're trying to capture the, the fieriness and then the six wings and all of that. I suspect if this seraphim you know, knocked on your front door uh, he, and you opened it, he would not say, do not be afraid, because uh, he's not very fearful. <laughs> there's, really, there's not a whole lot awe-inspiring, and that's, that's the problem with angels for us, isn't it? They're not, the way we conceive of them, they're not awe-inspiring. Well, we, we have too much the porcelain dollar store figurine angel in our minds, or the pudgy little cheeked cherub in our, in our minds. But what's the point? Why am I going here? The point is that angels represent to us the presence of the high and holy one. And if we are so deeply unaffected by, in our emotions, in our minds, by the the existence and presence of these angels. I mean, how much more so are we, are we blasé when it comes to the presence of the high and holy and lofty God that's spoken of here in Isaiah 57? Yeah, there are wonderful promises made in this passage to suffering uh, and hurting people. I mean, you notice this, the sermon title, what, it's, he dwells with the lowly and the contrite. But the only way to really make that sing to you, I think, is to first have the backdrop of this is the high and holy lofty one who's coming to dwell with the lowly and the contrite. Okay, there are two characteristics. I want to go to verse 15. Two characteristics that uh, describe... And we just said them in the sermon title. That describe the person to whom God comes to dwell. The first of them is the C word right there. They are contrite. Yeah, contrite. Well, we don't use that word very often these days. It's kind of a quaint old English word. If you look up contrite in the dictionary, you're going to see something along the lines of Contrite is a person who feels remorse. Contrite is somebody who's penitent. Contrition means that you're you're sorrowful for your guilt. But all of the the Hebrew scholars, when they, I mean, the guys that I read, the commentaries that I read, when they look at this word, they say there's something actually going on different in the Hebrew. Contrite literally means someone who is crushed. Pulverized. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament of, of being pulverized into powder or, or into dust. It's used in Isaiah chapter 53 for the suffering servant, where it says, He was what for our iniquities? He, w- he was crushed for, our, that's the very same word. 
It's not that Jesus was contrite for our iniquities on the cross. No, he was, he was pulverized for our iniquities. Um, and, and that's, I think this is just a, an amazing promise that, that God makes to, uh, especially it's going to be meaningful to those of us who walk in the room this morning and, and we feel crushed. I mean, most of us, we're not at that level. Like 10% of us walk in here feeling just utterly destroyed. The 90% of us, we got a few headaches, but it's not that big of a deal. But for, for you, for the 10% of you who just, you feel such a, a crushing weight on, side, uh, on your shoulders, experience some, experiencing some major trouble, experiencing some deep, deep wound, that is what qualifies you to have the high and holy one come and infuse your life with power. At least that's what he says. Second characteristic. So we see it there that uh, he also comes to dwell with the lowly. Okay, the lowly. A.K.A. Um, who are lowly people. The humble. The, uh, the selfless. The, the people who are not, or who are unselfish. Yeah, when I'm reading through this, initially I, I read, you know, okay, God comes to dwell with the contrite and the lowly. And that makes sense. I mean, contri- contrite people or lowly people, the two go together. But actually, if you start to stop to think about it, that's really not all that true. At least in my experience, some of the most self-absorbed people I, I work with, I ever meet, are people who, who have been crushed the, the actual crushings, if you've ever been like truly, utterly pulverized by pain, that has a way of making us incredibly self-centered. I mean, it, my needs are the most important thing in, in the world. And it, pain has this, am I right? It has this ability to make us implode in on ourselves where... So there's an example of this in Tolkien's, uh, I think it's in the third story of... Uh, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Return of the King, where Samwise Gamgee ends up taking the ring of power and he ends up slipping it on his finger. You know, the ring of power kind of emphasizes the, the person's ego. And this is how Tolkien described it. When Sam, when Sam put on the ring of power, he looked out on his surroundings and everything out there, everything out there was this hazy, gray, vague, while he himself was perfectly crystal clear, solid and clear and black, like a little black rock sitting alone on the ground. You read that description and you say, man, that is, that's a much more realistic view of what of suffering, deep suffering and what it can do to us. It makes it so that you know, my needs are the only real and solid thing and everybody else and other people are just this vague Hazy concern on the periphery. And the other thing that I notice about suffering people, and you notice this too, is that suffering creates isolation. It does. We become uh, much more isolated from people. People uh, start to move themselves away from us when we are really suffering. Uh, They don't want to get mixed up in our drama. Have you ever heard that phrase? You know, they start to remove themselves or we remove ourselves. And we feel like 
they can't relate to me anymore. And so the people that you used to feel a close connection to, isn't it strange how it, as you go through suffering, you start to feel a distance from them. Maybe they're being too judgmental. You, uh, I, don't, I don't need negative voices in my life, right? And so you just you start to move, move away. But my, the bigger point that I'm trying to make is that is, uh, suffering... Lowliness, being crushed, doesn't always go with humility. In fact, oftentimes the, the two are, are counter, they're contrary to each other. But it's to this very unique and particular kind of person that God says he, he comes to make his power known. Verse 17. So let's move on. Now I think we covered... 15 pretty well. 17. The Lord says, I was enraged by their sinful greed. Talking here about the land of Judah. I was enraged. I punished them. I hid my face in anger from them. But they kept on their stubborn way. I have seen what they do, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to them, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those who are far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Many of you are familiar with the story of Horatio Spafford, the uh, American lawyer who lost everything that he had to the great Chicago fire in 1871. It was about two years, only two years after he lost everything, that he sent his wife, Anna, and his four little daughters put them on a boat, and sent them to Europe on, on a trip. They're sailing across the Atlantic. And how does, it, how does this happen? How does one boat in the middle of the Atlantic run into another boat? Like, what are the probabilities of that taking place? That's what happened. And as the ship is going down, Anna calls her little girls to her, to her side, and they pray together and pray for God's deliverance. Uh, the ship sinks, the, it goes underwater, and in all the confusion of the shipwreck, they get uh, scattered, they, they um, lose each other. The rescue vessel arrives, and Anna is, is found unconscious, floating on some debris, and her four little girls have drowned. So they rescue her, they take her, she continues sailing on to Wales, and from Wales, she uh, cables a handwritten cablegram. They did that in 1873. And if you actually pull it up online, you go to the, the uh, Library of Congress, it is, it is archived. The, the, her Anna Spafford's cable to her husband, Horatio, in Chicago is in the Library of Congress. And it starts with these words, saved alone. Saved alone. Um, saved alone. What shall I do? Mrs. Goodwin... Children, Willie Culver, Mrs. Goodwin was a family friend. Willie Culver Culver was a neighborhood boy, her four little daughters. Mrs. Goodwin, children, Willie Culver, lost. Go with Reverend LaRue, a fellow survivor from the ship, to Paris. Send word, um, send reply immediately. So if you know the story, then he, he... Set, set sail for Europe, for Paris, I'm assuming, to go and, and fetch his, his wife. 
And as he's sailing away, um, what is it that he does on the ship? What is it that he writes? One of the, yeah, one of the most precious hymns to the Christian faith. It is well with my soul, right? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's the verse that we're most familiar with. But have you noticed what he does in verses 2 and 3? Let me read those to you. Verse 2. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. He goes, that's where he goes, verse 2. Verse 3. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord of my soul. Now, why does a man who is uh, going through cataclysmic grief decide to focus you know, all, all on the, the blood of Jesus, the cross of Jesus. Like, is that going to bring his four, four little daughters back? What? What's, what good does that do? And the answer is everything. I, I, maybe we sound like a broken record. I sound like a broken record on Sunday. Just, I really do believe that the gospel is, is, what, is, is all that's really necessary. And what, what happens when you're going through tremendous suffering? What goes through your head in those moments? The, th- the things that go through my head are God isn't real. God is, God's toying with me. God, maybe God is punishing me. Maybe, maybe he doesn't, doesn't care. And it is to the black darkness that comes out of the crushing that Horatio Spafford says, no, the gospel is true. Look what Christ has done for you, oh my soul. Look what, look what he has born for you. Um, I, I love this because he's taking the resources of the gospel and he's like, he is thinking himself back into the peace of God. He's, he's singing himself back into the peace of God. He takes what, I think all of us would agree would be probably the most poisonous thing that could happen to our faith, the loss of all of our children. And he says, to that black pit of hell, he says, the gospel's true. And I think that's what's good. I mean, I know that you don't find that exact language in Isaiah 57, but I think that's how you know, verse 19 applies. That's, that's what you've got to do, is, is you've got to think, sing, Um, thank your soul back into peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Verse 20 and 21, let's go go to those verses. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which is never still, whose waves continually churn up mud and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the for the wicked. Um, and I think what the point that Isaiah is trying to make here is, if you end up loving anything more than, more than God, 
if you end up living for anything more than God, then your life is going to be like, what's the image? A, a tossing sea. I mean, you ever walked on the beach in California and there's a storm out in the Pacific. The surf as it's coming in, it's all frothy and, and laden with kelp that's been dredged up from the bottom. And that's the, if you live for anything else, he says, you're always going to be experiencing the anxiety of losing it. Because, uh, I mean, the not, what Shelton said at the beginning of the ser- service was so true. It's, uh, it's unbearable to, to lose it. And so he says, yes, the natural consequence of turning away from me and turning your affections is a deep restless, a profound restlessness of soul. And uh, Jesus says that it, it's like building your house on sand instead of the rock. What happens in that metaphor? When the storm comes, when the, the waves or the, the, um, the torrent arrives, if you're built on the sand, he says, there's no stability. Well, I want to finish here. Um, December is crazy time for pastors. It's, it's got to be the busiest month of the year. So Thursday, I was kind of gearing up, already gearing up for Christmas Eve and um, gearing up for my Christmas sermon on the 20th. And I was listening to a Tim Keller Christmas sermon in order to do so. I, you know, I've, I, I admire him. I, I listened to a bunch of things and read kind of everything that he's written. Um, I got to the point that I can anticipate what he's going to say before he even says it. And, and you might feel the same way with me. You've heard me. <laughs> You've heard me so much that you're like, I know what this guy is going to say. So he told a story that I never heard before. It, it, it just struck me. It's so appropriate. His wife, Kathy Keller, is an accomplished author in her own right. She ended up co-authoring with him two of their books, The Meaning of Marriage, which is really good, and uh, the latest book that they've published, which is Daily Devotions on the Psalms which I think just came out, I mean, within a few, few weeks or, or months. At the age of 12, Kathy Keller, you know, budding authoress, ended up writing to C.S. Lewis. Uh, not, not one letter, not two letters, but four letters. She wrote to C.S. Lewis four times. And those of you who know anything about Lewis, uh, the kids from all around the world would write letters to Lewis and he very conscientiously would always write in reply. So she writes him, the first, one of the letters is a, kind of a sob story. She submitted a mystery to her school, her junior high school newsletter, newspaper. And the editor, because they, they didn't have enough space to print her entire column, ended up just omitting the very last paragraph of the story which in the case of a mystery, kind of, that's when you tell, that's when you say who did it. And it, it made the story completely nonsensical. So she ends up writing to C.S. Lewis, oh, this happened to me. And what does he do? He, he takes her completely seriously. And he says something like, I know. We writers have to go through things like this. 
And he writes her back this very tender, sympathetic letter. He says, he says I know that the same thing, the same sort of thing has happened to me more than once. And, and we just have to press on. <laughs> um, okay, well, if you have read C.S. Lewis's, the bio, let's say, Alistair McGrath's biography of C.S. Lewis, you know that probably the thing that he detested most in life was writing letters. They, they were very hard for him. And if you actually look at the dates of the letters that she sent, and then you'll correspond the dates of his life, what you find is that he was writing during a time when he was deathly ill. In fact, the last two letters that he replies to her with are not even written by hand, which was his method of choice, but were typed, probably because he dictated the response to his brother, and his brother typed. So here you have a man. The last letter that he sent to her was 11 days before he died. Here you have a man who is dying, and he is dictating letters to you know, sobby 12-year-olds all the way back in the United States. And once she realizes that as an adult, she's like, that is amazing. This great man would take the time to identify with me at 12 and to show me that kind of kindness. And then she took the next step, which is, if I'm moved by a great writer identifying with me and showing me at the expense of his time, uh, why am I not moved by far more by the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, at the expense of his life, you know, came to identify with me? Because when you, at the end of the day, Isaiah 57 is a Christmas song. The high and holy one who dwells in the high and holy place does what? He comes to dwell with the contrite and lowly of heart. And she said, the more, um, the more I thought about it, why doesn't, that, why doesn't it lift me up and move me and console me, empower me, that Jesus would do all of this to identify with me uh, at his expense? And she said, well, the more I thought about it, the, the more it did. The more, the more it did move me. And that's what, isn't that what Advent is all about? It's taking a message that you know like the back of your hand and bringing it to bear on your, your heart and your soul so that it you know, moves you once again. The high and holy one who dwells in a high and, and lofty place has, has come to make his abode with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Christmas soon. Christmas soon. Amen.